to Adjusted, a claims podcast for all insurance, workers' compensation, and claims enthusiasts. Today, we have a very, 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 very special guest to me. We have my mentor, Mark, the RX professor, Pew, joining us today to talk all things cannabis. My name is Claire Musselman, and I am coming to you live from Des Moines, Iowa, and my co-host, Greg Hamlin, coming at you from Birmingham, Alabama, and Berkeley Industrial Comp. So today's really fun for a plethora of reasons, but really fun for me to be with my mentor today as we talk all things related to pharmacy and cannabis. So Mark is the Senior Vice President of Preferred Medical. So Mark, welcome to Adjusted. Thanks, Claire. And Greg, thanks for inviting me. Just to clarify, I am one of about 5,000 mentors for Claire. So I, I just I just want to clarify that. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been great to be a part of Claire's life over the past several years and to get to know her a lot better. I don't know Greg as much, but um, I'm very excited to get to know you a little bit more, Greg, as we uh, go through this discussion as well. One of the big highlights that you'll want to know about Greg is that he used to drive a two-tone van back in high school. Oh, yeah. Wood paneling. Wood paneling. That's right. And I uh, actually took out one of the doors and had to replace it. And that door, the driver's side door, did not have wood paneling. It was a different color. Just to make Mm. sure I was totally cool. Yeah, that that, that's definitely... uh, Did you play Beach Boys while you were driving around in it or... No, I, I'm just pretty sure my parents didn't want me to have friends. So <laughs> <laughs> That was one way to do it for sure. <laughs> well, Mark, welcome. We're happy to have you today. So as we normally start out with our guests, how did you get into workers' compensation? I know you entered around 1990. And so what brought you into work comp? Uh, well, I'm a Hotel California person, just like everybody else. I, I found the, I, I came in, but I can't find the door to get out. Um, 1990 really was when I started, um, I was working full-time at a company called Equifax and I was managing a a software development team. And one of my team members was doing nights and weekends work for a company called uh, PRI or Prium, um, at the time. And he was getting tired of not having any free time. And so I was looking for a different challenge and said, yeah, I'll, I'll take over that responsibility. So, uh, they did utilization review, utilization management, uh, in workers' compensation. So, you know, as a software developer, you don't ever try to solve anything without knowing what you're trying to solve. So I had to dive into workers' comp. I had to dive into treatment guidelines. I had to dry, dive into medical stuff that I had never really been exposed to other than as a patient. Um, had to dive into all the crazy statutes to dive into projected savings versus hard savings and how to track claim data and demographics and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so I spent the first decade kind of doing nights and weekends, joined full time uh, after Y2K. Um, and it, it, it was not a scam. Uh, literally, the world could have ended on Y2K. Um, but thanks to efforts from people like me, um, we made sure that all the lights came on. I was actually a short night on December 31st, 1999, just to make sure that, you know, when Sydney, Australia didn't didn't implode, we figured we had a pretty good chance. But um, after I took Choice Point through that, then I joined them full time uh, and did put on my product development hat uh, from a similar to software development uh, and started to come up with different ways of doing things. And in 2003, 
Uh, I saw this ongoing continuing issue with the overprescribing of opioids and, and not just the prescription painkillers, the opioids, but the benzodiazepines, the muscle relaxants, the antidepressants, the help me poop, the help me get to sleep, help me wake up, all the different drugs that come from what I call polypharmacy, uh, inappropriate polypharmacy. And so I put my product development hat back on and get, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had a peer review product specifically to address the overprescribing of opioids. So uh, I did sales. I actually went out to California, Oregon, Texas um, with two suitcases, one with clothes and one empty. And the empty one was full by the time I got back because I literally pulled uh, uh, gym clips and staples and ran through photocopies of medical records. And that's how I got used to reading progress reports um, and understanding drug regimens and understanding diagnostic reports and stuff like that. So kind of by immersion. Uh, and then, you know, uh, by virtue of that, I just kind of got more and more informed about the situation. Uh, in 2012, I got the first opportunity to speak publicly. Um, I'm the, I'm a preacher's kid. So I guess I come by the, the combination of, uh, educating and agitating, um, uh, which is my tagline kind of naturally. But, um, I'm glad the podium that I was standing behind, uh, had a, a, a not a see-through because my knees were knocking um, and it was really tough being in front of 50 nurses uh, and talking about best practices in opioid management. I still got this, the original PowerPoint. It was definitely uh, a PowerPoint vomit. I mean, it was like, how many words can you fit on an individual slide? Because I just didn't have any confidence in my ability to relay everything that I had learned over the past 10 years. But a nurse came up to me afterwards and she said, um, you're the best person that I've ever heard speak on this particular subject. I said, well, you actually need to get out more, but I appreciate the confidence. And she kind of became a groupie and got me an opportunity to do more speaking engagements. And now I'm uh, 650, I think, presentations um, to about 52,000 people uh, since 2012 in, in regards to that. And in 2014, I started looking at cannabis uh, and it, that ended up being a really important year because a variety of states passed medical cannabis laws. Uh, and uh, the year prior, uh, New Mexico was the first state that required reimbursement. Uh, so I became kind of the Willie Nelson of work comp. So I've been in kind of the right place at the right time. And I've developed this reputation for talking about things and recognizing things uh, that not too many other people in the industry had. I was talking about chronic behavioral therapy when people couldn't spell CBT if you spotted them as C and the B. And they certainly weren't going to pay for it. Um, so I've been out in front of a lot of those things, um, and I, I put it back to my old roots of being a technologist and kind of, you know, taking the back of a napkin and saying, what's the problem? What's some solutions? Let's work through this and create something tangible from that. Love that. So where did the title The Rx Professor come from? Well, it started as a Twitter handle, um, and uh, and then it became kind of the self-defining term. Um, again, you know, I was really focused on prescription painkillers and inappropriate polypharmacy to start with. Now I've greatly expanded into biopsychosocial treatment model, cannabis, you know, just a little bit of everything. But the the it it, it kind of stuck. And the professor being educator again, my tagline is educator and agitator, uh, and the arts professor kind of fits that. So. Um, it used to be uh, my, my daughter used to ask me what I did for a living. And I noticed that she stopped paying attention about 30 seconds into my elevator pitch. Uh, and so eventually I just said, I'm in the healthcare industry. And then eventually I just said, I'm an arts profession. And she go, okay, that's good. And then she started texting her friends again. So, you know, it just became, it started as a Twitter handle. Um, and then it just became kind of the self-defining term as to who I am. 
like so, that. So, Mark, one of the things I know we've seen in the news a lot over the last, I don't know how many years, has been discussion about the opioid crisis. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of actions taken legislatively in different states, nationally, especially over the last three or four years. How do we get where we are today when it comes to perhaps the overprescribing of opioids and benzos and some of the combinations that have really taken over the market? I think we've seen some pushback recently, but how do we end up where we are now? Well, it's a long story, and I'll try to give you the Cliff's Notes version um, for those who got old enough to re- re- remember what Cliff's Notes are. Um, it was it really started in the mid 1990s, and doctors were accused of undertreating pain while Purdue Pharma launched OxyContin, while pain was added as the fifth vital sign, while um, uh, uh, Press Ganey patient satisfaction surveys were implemented. So all of those things kind of happened at the same time, not strategic, but looking back, they all kind of built this toxic cocktail of massive overprescribing of opioids, starting with OxyContin, but all sorts of other uh, drugs as well. And then obviously, you know, then you start dealing with the side effects, the symptoms that come from that, the inability to, you know, the constipation, the sleep disorders, uh, the we got you really asleep. And so now you can't wake up and now we need to help wake you up. Uh, the depression, the anxiety that came from reduced function over time. And so it just kind of compounded. And that that what was in, was interesting to me in 2003 is I would look for opioids, but I'd see all these other drugs and drug classifications and oftentimes increased dosage over time. So you could see that, um, you know, hormonal supplements increased. You could see that um, their constipation was getting worse because now they had two stool softeners. You could see the dosage increasing from 5 to 10 to 15 to 20 milligram on the anti-anxiety drugs. So obviously the treatment that we were, that we were giving them uh, was creating more harm than good, uh, which is the op- op- opposite of the Hippocratic Oath. And so um, we became wise to that as an industry, as a healthcare, as a country, um, largely because more and more people, new people that had succumbed to the opioid epidemic, either by becoming addicted, becoming dependent, becoming tolerant, overdosing, even dying from the overdoses. And so it became a very, very personal story. Um, the President Obama in 2012 was the first one to actually talk about the opioid epidemic from the White House standpoint. Every White House since then has continued to propagate that. Uh, the DEA certainly was looking at the FDA was looking at it in workers compensation, though, um, we were I think we were one of the payers ahead of the curve. I thought we did a much better job than the VA, the Medicare, Medicaid, private pay, because we own the claim forever. And if we screw it up, um, we own the screw up forever. And so it became really, really obvious when we did Medicare set asides. And they were for several hundred thousand dollars filled with drugs that were never meant for, for long term use. Um, but they would continue. We kind of did the simple math and said, yes, for the next 26.3 years, you're going to spend $3,000 a month on drugs that actually make your life worse than better. Um, so we've had a variety of wake up calls. Um, I, I was involved originally in the drug formula in Texas in 2010, which was the first uh, non-monopolistic state that it launched a drug formulary. That was a huge tool uh, that that operated and kind of raised the the uh, uh, the understanding of that. And interestingly enough, Soma or Carisoprodol, the generic, is a muscle relaxant, highly addictive, uh, metabolizes into a problem A to actually becomes an addictive drug. 
Uh, you mix it with an opioid and it creates a significantly higher euphoria than you get just from the opioid itself. Um, and the use of Selma was just all over the place when I first started looking at it. Well, Texas adopted their drug formula in, in 2011 and Selma dropped like a rock because Selma was an end drug, meaning that you had to go through extra hoops in order to have it pre-authorized. And what doctors found out pretty quickly is you couldn't justify its use based on treatment guidelines, based on evidence-based medicine, based on the standard of practice. And so they just found something else. And so we've had a variety of those things. The DEA has had take-back days uh, in order to get the excess care, the excess drugs out of medicine cabinets, which oftentimes ends up in the hands of, of bad people. Um, I, I say bad people, people who are going to abuse or misuse. I, I want to make sure I'm clear about that. Uh, but there's just been a number of things. And we had made pretty good headway. Um, actually, if you look at the drug trends reports in workers' comp, uh, we basically uh, plateaued from an opioid utilization uh, in 2014-2015, about a year after, a year before um, the general in the the general um, healthcare, um, and it's been double digit declines ever since then. So we've been making some progress. My question all along with this is, okay, we're taking, we're not using opioids. What are we going to give them? Because people are still in pain. You know, are we giving? Are we switching to NSAIDs? Uh, which actually in California, NSAIDs outstripped the use of opioids back in 2019. Um, are we uh, increasing the use of benzodiazepines, which are really dangerous by themselves, especially if you mix them with opioids? Are we switching to tramadol or are we switching to gabapentinoids or are we switch, switching to behavioral health? Are we switching to a biocyclist? What are we doing because these people still have pain? So we can claim victory and go every, you know, every year we're declining in double digit. But the people in pain, what are we doing to, to, to help them through that acute and chronic pain? And we drop them like like hotcakes. Unfortunately, what's happened in COVID is a lot of the progress that we made has been reversed because of the decisions by uh, federal, state, and local governments to lock everybody down, to isolate everybody, to deem medical care as non-essential, to deem their businesses as non-essential. So now we've got a huge number of people. We're still 10 million people down at this point. Uh, from an employment standpoint, when, when than where we were before COVID. So you got huge food insecurity issues. You got people with significant financial issues, relational issues that have been stuck at home, uh, you know, for a long period of time. They weren't able to get that hip replacement, whether it was work comp or not. And so their pain has gotten worse. Um, and so we've seen an, a tremendous increase in self-medication, a 500 percent increase in consumption of alcohol. Uh, we've seen a reversal in the use of opioids from an overdose standpoint, from a fatality standpoint, um, increased calls to suicide hotlines. My personal opinion is that the re the repercussions from what we have done to ourselves in dealing with COVID from the isolation and all this thing, the, the things that we have done, which were necessary at some point, but um, all of that has been, that's going to outstrip the number of people that actually died from COVID. Because if you think about the generational impacts for, for kids that have not been in school for a year, they're going to have to basically repeat a grade. They have completely lost it. Their parents haven't been able to be parents and workers and teachers at the same time. So all of that has kind of transpired into reversing the trends and we're seeing the increase uh, use of opioids, both from a painkilling standpoint, as well as from an illicit uh, overdose standpoint. So 
uh, you know, we were all patting ourselves on the back with the trends and the progress would be made, but we all, not that we have to start over, but we almost have to get back on it. Cause I've been talking about opioids since 2012. I've been dealing with it since 2003. Um, you know, back 2015, 2016, I started to see an opioid fatigue. It's like every conference had 17 different panels, you know, talking about opioids and how bad opioids were. And it's like, dude, I get it. I, 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 you know, I get it. And so nobody, we said, we got it. Well, we're going to have to start reopening that box again. And we're going to have to start talking about opioids and proper pain management because unfortunately COVID has created some backslide in regards to how we're dealing with that. So that was the Cliff's Notes. If you want the full three hour version, um, you know, I'll give it to you later, but that's the Cliff's Notes version. That's I love point. that you highlight that we've got we're going to have work to do because I think that that's one of the interesting things when people would ask us to like, Oh, what do your opioid trends look like? Uh, we don't have them. Like we've purposely educated our adjusters to look outside the box. What else is there? A lot of people don't want to be medicated. So what other, what other avenues are there? And we've, they've been, I know QLI has put on a couple of these webinars where it's a, what are the other options for pain control and we had Becky Curtis on during season one, and she gave us her experience through Take Courage Coaching and how they've used coaching and behavioral psychology, and they've used motivational interviewing, and they go through these different processes where there are other avenues to utilize. But then we all, we need to do a better job in the carrier stance and the TPA stance or anybody that's involved in making decisions for injured workers on this front as to what other avenues are out there and how can we continue to think outside the box when it might not be what we've done in the past, but it could be a great solution for the future. So how do we get adjusters the appropriate pharmaceutical education to pass along to injured workers in this state? Because I think, you know, injured or adjusters are only, you know, they are only given whatever is coming down through leadership or if they go seek it out on their own. So what should we be doing to help educate the adjusting world when we're looking at pharmacology? Well, you know, if if a programmer can figure it out, I'm pretty sure someone uh, that is a claim suggester can figure out. One of my favorite websites has always been drugs.com. Um, it's a completely free resource. It tells you absolutely everything you need to know about a drug, um, what the side effects are, what you should use with it, what you shouldn't use with it, what the dosage escalation, concerns about overdose, uh, you know, concerns about comorbidities, all that stuff is on there. Um, so that that's definitely a website. If a claims adjuster comes across a drug, I, I've never heard of that. Um, go to drugs.com, type in the drug name, and it will tell you everything that you need to know in regards to that. Um, you know, I think um, continuing education, you know, is really important. Uh, that's certainly been my, uh, you know, go-to since 2012 and providing that kind of education. And it's, it's funny when I'm, uh, I, I've been in front of audiences that are just claims adjusters, all clinicians, mixture, you know, and it's amazing. Whoever's in the audience is writing notes furiously as, as though they've never heard it before. And it's like, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Fred, um, you probably should have known this already. But what you don't understand is medical schools really didn't spend a whole lot of time in pharmacology training. They didn't spend really any time in pain management training. Um, and it's interestingly enough, the pain, the pain management specialist really is only something that's about two decades uh, old. And most of the pain management specialists are anesthesiologists. You think of anesthesiology, it's not about pain management. It's about knocking you out. Um, so, you know, we've got all these different things. So there's a lot of people that don't really fully understand the repercussions of all this in that whole person. So, 
you know, I, I think we're probably going to have to get back on the train again and go, okay, here's what the dangers are. Here's the, the full suite of options. And really what I've gravitated to talk talking about over the past four or five years is giving the full suite, the biopsychosocial, the biomedical, the pharmacology, because there's pharmacology that works. The reason why we live as long as we do is, is oftentimes related to big pharma. Right. Not big opioid pharma, but big pharma helping us manage diabetes and hypertension. Now, granted, if you've got diabetes and you're morbidly obese and you and you eat crappy foods, um, if you lost weight and started eating more nutritiously, maybe you don't need that insulin all the time. So there's some things from a self-management standpoint uh, that we should certainly embrace. And I think that's something that we need to enforce with the injured uh, with the injured worker population. But, you know, I think claims adjusters, there's resources out there. Um, there's, you know, a, a gazillion webinars <laughs> at this point um, that you can do both, you know, recorded, uh, you know, and live going forward. Um, and, and I think uh, engagement with case managers is really important. And I think this is where WorkComp is really going and has been going for a while is an automation of predictive analytics um, and incorporating, and I'm, I'm sure you guys at, at Berkeley have a lot of that, where you're identifying red flags. And because we got every potential way that you can poke and prod somebody and their demographics and the progress reports, all those individual data points, going back to my tech background, if they're data elements, there are things that you can query. There are things that you can look, if it's this and it's this and it's this, then there's might be a problem. And that predictive analytics will help you make sure to focus your efforts on the ones that indicate that they may not necessarily have good outcomes, right? So the ones that are met only, the ones that are relatively, um, you know, benign injuries or the ones where that injured worker is really, really enthusiastic about getting back to work and get back to function. And even though it's a, di a difficult, challenging injury, they're doing everything the doctor said and they're going through all signs of compliance. You don't need to throw the kitchen sink at that. You just need to maintain it, make sure the injured worker is still staying motivated, that they're still engaged with competent physicians, and you're good to go. But when you see those red flags, you need to throw the kitchen sink at that before rather than after. And, and, and that's when I first started looking in 2003, it was like the hashtag clean up the mess, which was one of my first taglines, right? It was like, we got a mess. We created a mess. And now we got to put this genie back in the bottle. Well, putting the genie back in the bottle is a whole lot more da dangerous and difficult and challenging than not allowing the genie to get out of the bottle for it to begin with, which is my hashtag prevent the mess. So I went hashtag prevent the mess, hashtag clean up the mess. So the prevent the mess is before it goes south, throw the kitchen sink at it, engage telephonic or fuel case management, because a lot of injured workers don't have the healthcare literacy in order to understand what the treatment options are. Um, they're tossed at a lot of different, uh, you know, in big 75 cent words, and maybe they're working on a 25 cent vocabulary. They don't understand what's going on. It's going over their head and it's going quickly and they don't know how to take notes. And they're already overwhelmed by a work comp system that is just like the corn maze out in Iowa. If you went from, you know, one side of the state to the other, just one constant corn maze, that's kind of like work comp, right? Times 50. So they're already kind of dealing with an overwhelming of what the, you know, from a work comp standpoint. And then you throw all this healthcare jargon and all these treatment options that they're not equipped to be able to handle. And so that's why I'm a huge believer in uh, using predictive analytics to identify those that are trending poorly. And as soon as you start seeing those trends go in, throw some case managers, throw some nurses on that so that they can use their medical literacy as well as the ability to empathetically uh, relate to that injured worker and help them through making those decisions. So Did that answer your question at all? 
Yeah. And, and maybe even a, a step further, I'd like to go with that is you've talked about some of the, we've talked about the problem of opioids in general, and you mentioned some of the other possibilities of ways to address this. Cause I think you hit on something that's really important is these people still have pain and they still have issues that need to be worked through. And there's nothing worse than for an injured worker than hearing from an insurance company, your treatment's been denied without a alternative. So could you talk a little bit about some of the alternatives that might be on the horizon or some of the things that you're seeing experimented in our space? Uh, whether that I know you mentioned psychosocial, um, CBT, uh, or some of the other things that you've seen out there that people are utilizing that seem to be making an impact. Yeah, well, the biopsychosocial treatment model, treat, treating them as a whole person is so important. So that incorporates a variety of different things. It incorporates self-care. So helping that injured worker understand how important deep diaphragmic breathing can be um, to their pain management, how important exercise, how important nutrition is, how important being um, uh, properly hydrated with the 75 ounces of water every day, you know, the level of activity associated with that. So, you know, getting a, a nutritionist, you know, involved that that may sound like what is what in the world does that have to do with a torn ACL? Well, you know, if they're used to eating Taco Bell at uh, 2 a.m. Um, every night as their dinner. Um, and, and uh, you know, now I did read a, I did read an article that Taco Bell actually has one of the most nutritious menus. Um, so I, I think it was actually authored by Taco Bell. But, you know, anyway, um, you know, it's uh, um, so, you know, it's not all bad. But if you're eating a bean burrito at 3 a.m., that probably and, a, and chasing it down with the Mountain Dew, that chances are that you're not really treating your body all that well. Um, so if you want good clinical outcomes, maybe engaging them in nutrition, say, OK, eat a, eat a good breakfast. You know, eat like a king, eat breakfast like a king, uh, eat lunch like a queen and eat, eat dinner like a pauper. Um, so the biggest meal of the day should be your breakfast. It should be filled with antioxidants and should be filled with blueberry and, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables, all those different kinds of things, some proteins to get ready. You know, if they don't know that, you know, they're already starting off um, in, in poor shape. So I think educating the injured work on what they can do for themselves, um, uh, stretching exercises, you know, in the morning, it, just a variety of different things. You know, I talked about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, motivational interviewing. Claire, you mentioned that. Um, Becky, Becky's one of my best buddies. She's, she's awesome. Um, you know, acceptance commitment therapy, all sorts of different psychotherapy. We ran away with our head on fire, um, you know, a decade ago. It's like we don't want psych as principal diagnosis. But I promise you, if if the if the claim is going south, if you don't engage a psychotherapy involvement in that and help engage the whole person, you're going to end up with very poor clinical and financial outcomes. So paying for that CBT, paying for that motivational interviewing, acceptance commitment therapy, a behavioral psychologist uh, is really important. Um, I'm a I'm on the advisory board for Harvard MedTech, uh, which offers virtual reality therapy. Um, and I, 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 since October of 2019 is when I, when I joined their advisory board. And I've gotten to know a lot about the value of virtual reality, the, uh, uh, the distraction and the joy uh, and, and uh, the escape that comes from that, um, the neuroscience, the neuroplasticity that's happening, the gate control theory, all those things, how important your brain is in order to managing pain. And so virtual reality therapy, I'm seeing a tremendous uptake in recognizing that that, again, you know, um, what does putting on a, a you know, a, a, um, a gaming situation, how is that going to help? Well, if they're in chronic pain, they're in acute pain, they have anxiety, they're having sleep disorders, 
Uh, there's tremendous, um, you know, help, uh, you know, with it, with that. So there's a number of things, yoga, you know, um, uh, talked about yoga a lot. Um, there's a lot of yoga classes online now. Um, typically, I, uh, workers comp hasn't paid for yoga classes. Um, but if it helps from a mindful standpoint, if it helps from a stretching and, uh, you know, a range of motion standpoint, workers comp hadn't been, hasn't paid for acupuncture. Um, but New York has accepted it. California has accepted it. Washington had a great pilot in regards to acupuncture. Um, there's growing evidence associated uh, with the efficacy of that. Um, but I think ultimately what you got to understand is every single person is different. They're individual. They bring different physical comorbidities. They bring different psychosocial comorbidities. They bring the baggage from how they were brought up and the socioeconomic circumstances and the social determinants of health that they're living with now, that they're living with in the past. The, the location of their pain is different. Um, the implications of that pain, the financial situations, the relational situations at home, every single person is different. And so there isn't a single tool that's going to work for everybody. And that's why I've been preaching for the past four, five, six years that we've got to bring the whole tool belt. We can't come to this argument and say, all we've got is opioids and that's going to fit everybody. That's what we did. That's what got us into trouble. We need to have the full tool belt and we need to understand what's evidence based, what has science behind it. Um, what do treatment guidelines suggest? How do you do it? How do you use it? And bring all that to bear and then figure out which of those tools work for that individual person. That's great. And I think that's something that the industry is starting to wake up to, but we've got a lot of work to do. That's for sure. We do. Um, so going a step further, I know you know quite a bit about the history of medical marijuana and where it fits in the workers' compensation space. And this is something that's been a real challenge, um, especially for, I think, insurance companies, because you have some states that have authorized it and a growing number of states that have authorized it, yet there are still federal laws in place that have it as an illegal substance. So I think one of the challenges the insurance industry is struggling with is how do we navigate this? Um, obviously, we want to do right by our injured workers. And so what are some of the solutions you've seen uh, or how have you seen insurance carriers responding to, uh, especially in states where it is legal, uh, medical marijuana in the workers' compensation space? Well, my first blog post on this, I put medical marijuana in air quotes. Um, so I, I was definitely a healthy skeptic. Um, I have I have not imbibed in that. Um, I, I guess it probably a Van Halen concert back in the 80s. I probably got contact high, um, but it, it uh, obviously it was just because I was there and they were there next to me. Um, so, uh, you know, I was definitely a healthy skeptic come into it, but I, I'm, I'm of the firm belief that cannabis is medicinal. It has medicinal aspects. If you understand the endocannabinoid system, which most doctors don't because it was not taught and wasn't even recognized about 15 years ago. Um, the body has CB1 and CB2 receptors throughout our body, just like the mu receptor that accepts the uh, opioids. It's in our gut, it's in our brain, it's in our spine, it's all throughout our body. Um, and we, uh, it's a natural, natural thing to have cannabinoids. And we have an endocannabinoid system where we create our, our internal cannabinoids, and then we can get it from external uh, resources as well. And when you think about 
the evidence that the growing evidence that it helps in chronic pain, it helps in anxiety, it helps in sleep disorders, it helps in neurological diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, uh, it helps in PTSD. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people go, there's no science behind uh, medical marijuana. And I, you're just not, they're just not paying attention. Um, there is a, a massive growing amount of science um, and that's coming out of Israel. It's coming out of China. Uh, there's more and more coming out of the United States. Canada uh, is doing a lot up there because they legalize both medical um, and recreational marijuana. Mexico is legalized medical marijuana and they're actually treating it like medicine. Uh, recreational is coming to Mexico shortly. So the United States is going to be compacted by that. So when you when you read the tea leaves, when you look at the Gallup polls, um, you know, two thirds of the people in the Gallup polls believe that marijuana should be legalized um, and greater than 90 percent believe that medical marijuana should be legalized. So the the, the horse is already out of the barn. Um, so it's just a function of when, not if the feds legalize it, declassify it. Um, you know, whatever you want to call it, decriminalize it. There's a variety of different ways you go. So the payers that are hanging their hat on it's illegal, the federal level, and therefore they don't look at the veracity of the of the evidence. They don't look at the impact. They don't see that this individual was taking lots of prescription medications. And when they started taking cannabis, those prescription medications declined. They're not looking at the they're not. And cannabis doesn't work for everybody, obviously, just like CBT doesn't work for everybody. Opioids don't work for everybody. Um, but for payers that just dismiss out of hand and say it's federally illegal, which is where ODG and ACOM and most state guidelines right now, they start and stop with it's illegal. So therefore, we don't care about it. Um, that's very short-sighted because uh, payers are being uh, required to reimburse in some particular cases. Um, but I have had a lot of discussions. I've done a couple hundred presentations around the country since 2014. And by virtue of that, had the opportunity to speak to a lot of people. And there's a lot of payers who are doing it voluntarily. They're doing it because they see it's less expensive. They, they're doing it because they see it can help settle the claim. They do it because they see it reduces the number of prescription medications that are being used with less side effects. Again, not for everybody, um, but they're seeing that evidence and they go, you know, we're not going to broadcast it. We're not going to call up WorkComp Central and go, hey, guess what? We're in the weed business. But they are going to do it on a on a case by case basis, which is evidence based medicine. Right. You're, you're looking at the implications of that. Um, and they're doing that. So, you know, I, I think that where the. Work comp industry is right now, and this is something I'm, I'm working, um, trying to solve, is control of it. So right now, reimbursement is basically a blank check. So if you just if you're required to reimburse or you voluntarily decide to, you're going go out and get all your weed, talk with your bud tender, or talk with your friends, or you know look at what you used to do last week, and go out and buy something that's going to address your work comp injury. Give us the receipt, and we'll reimburse you for it. There's no control on quality. There's no control on quantity, on dosing, on frequency, on formulation. There's no control whatsoever. It's basically giving a blank check and go, do, do whatever you want to. And if it works for you, we'll stroke a check. We have no idea if we're paying market rate. We have no idea if they're getting something that is of high quality. We don't have any idea if the formulation, if smoking it versus vaping it versus edibles versus, you know, oil and tincture. We don't, we're not sure, you know, what's happening with that. We're not, not sure the bioavailability. We're not sure if they're using some in the morning and different stuff in the evening. We have no idea. All we're doing is going, dude, this works. Reimburse me that. So that how does that play in works. when we look at it from like a cancer standpoint? 
is used to treat. Um, it's used for cancer patients. So is that the similar, is that a similar thing where we just, we have no control over, you know, disbursement strength, um, kind of the integrity of the marijuana that people are getting? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's, it, it's really kind of, I understand why people are doing it um, because they see the repercussions. They see the positive potential implications of it, but they're not exerting any kind of control. They're not treating it like a physical therapy 12th visit where you want to verify that 12th. They're not looking at it as do they really need all three epidural steroid injections pre-approved at, at first, or do we just approve one and see how it works? We're not doing it based on the timing of the MRI. We're not doing it, you know, is the spinal surgery appropriate or should we do conservative therapy? They're not treating it like medicine. They're treating it kind of like recreational in that you do what you do. And if it works for you, let us know. We will reimburse it for it. So there's this hole. There's this gap in the workers' compensation industry. There's a desire to potentially use cannabis in some areas. But the industry itself doesn't fully understand how to treat it like medicine, how to manage it like medicine, how to how to manage it like anything else. So if medicinal marijuana is medicine, it should be treated like medicine. Right. I mean, that makes that makes it obvious. So one of the things that I'm, I'm working on is trying to figure out how to how to create those forms of control. So if you are going down this route, there is some level of integrity to, to use your point, Claire. You understand that what they're doing, there's some science rigor behind it. There's, you know, some validation behind it, you know, and, and that's the next step. And that's something that the work comp industry is going to have to do, because, Greg, to your point, the bar, the, the horse is already out of the barn. Payers are struggling with this, whether they say no, absolutely not. We're never going to do it or we're going to do it on a case by case basis or dude, you're in Colorado, do whatever you want to. So you got all you got all those different mixtures of things going on and the industry has to come to grips with it. Because if again, if the feds, not if, when the feds declassify, legalize it, you can't hang your hat on it's illegal. So therefore, we're just going to de- we're just going to deny it. You can't do that. We're going to have to think more holistically, just like we have evolved on these other aspects to try to figure out how to treat it actually like medicine. So we go down in this, sorry, Greg, and I'll I'll let you ask your question. So we get on this rabbit hole. We've always done things this way and we get very ingrained into the way that we've handled insurance claims to begin with. So do you believe that this is, I guess, I feel like I want to know the why people are so fear-based behind this. I guess I think that, you know, we've got so many thought leaders and so much mind shifting going on. We've got some studies out there. Why is everybody so afraid to look at this as an option when we've seen how poisonous like prescriptions have been? And I don't say that out of uh, my own personal belief system or anything on that, but just looking at the science behind everything, we know what happens to the human body when they are on all the opioids and they're on the compound medication and we know what happens when we're on that. So where does this fear come from? Is it money-based? Is it control-based? Like, why aren't we being more thought leadership oriented in a space like this when there is science out there? There is starting to be a lot more studies on this and to think outside of the box to do what's right for humans. Well, there's a couple of levels to that. One of the things that I recognized when I first started talking about opioids is there, there weren't any preconceived biases either for or against opioids. Nobody really knew. They just, I got a Percocet from my dentist and they gave me 30 days and, you know, I took five and it made me feel weird and I didn't take the other 25. They kind of had that personal experience, but it, it wasn't really kind of a, this is good versus evil. This is bad versus good. It was just like, 
doctors prescribe it. The FDA approved it through their, you know, their, their, their process. Um, and so we're good to go. But when I, when I started talking and writing about marijuana, um, it became obvious that everybody came in the conversation with a preconceived bias. You know, you were a stoner when you grow up and then you grew out of it in college because you realized that that wasn't really consistent with trying to get a job or passing a drug test. And so it wasn't a big deal and you just got rid of it. Or you're still a stoner and you're a, um, you know, you're awake, you're awake and baker where you instead of drinking a couple cups, a co- couple cups of coffee, you take a couple puffs. So you got those and then you got the other people that absolutely, you know, it's the devil's lettuce and um, absolutely this is evil. And all they think of is Jeff Spicoli from Rich for Fast Times at Richmond High. And they're just like, nah, that that ain't medicine. Um, and then you got the people in the middle that are like, well, you know, people are using it. So let's just tax it like alcohol. Let's go ahead and treat it. You know, it's kind of hypocritical to talk about how bad marijuana is when uh, we got mothers against drunk driving with all the people that have been killed from drunk driving or alcoholism and alcohol is completely legal. So you got all these things mixtures. So when someone comes into the conversation, whether they're a medical director, whether they're a nurse case manager, whether they're a CFO or CEO, C-suite, whether they're a claims adjuster, they come into it with a personal preconceived bias, either for or against or maybe I could go either direction. And it was interesting as I did my presentations, I would usually do a poll and say, what do y'all think about in terms of medical marijuana? And I would say, how many of y'all believe that it's absolutely wrong? It's evil. It's the devil's lettuce. And there would be kind of, you know, a few hands and there would be, okay, how many of y'all are, 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 you know, smoking in your car before you got here? You know, and, and what I found is that the majority was the bell curve. You know, whoever invented the bell curve always gets it right. You know, there's there's five or 10 percent on either end and then there's 80 or 90 percent in the middle. And most of the people were like, you know what? I don't really know. I may have used it. I may not have used it. But if there's science, if there's anecdote, if I if I have a friend, a lot of people that said that medicine, that, that marijuana was medicinal, a lot of them would admit they knew somebody who is receiving benefit from using cannabis as opposed to other things. So it became a personal kind of thing. So it was a bell curve. Most of the people could go either direction on the science. So that's one thing. The other thing is people are still afraid because it is illegal at the federal level that, you know, and I, I had this uh, uh, discussion in Santa Fe uh, for some legislation uh, back several years ago in New Mexico where they were looking at trying to uh, 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 actually mandate that there would be no reimbursement of marijuana. Uh, and one of the arguments was, well, if if we stroke a check um, and we let's say we do Breaking Bad, right? We got the intermediary attorney, you know, that's going to help be kind of the intermediary. We, we don't actually go to an ATM, withdraw 200 bucks and, you know, beat them on a street corner and go, here's your here's your reimbursement. If we actually stroke a check, I'm afraid the DEA is going to come in and take our CFO, our CEO out in handcuffs because we have just done the El Chapo, right? We're doing money laundering associated with that. So there's a fear of that. But I think when you look at the number of payers that are voluntarily doing it, they have realized the DEA ain't coming for you. It's just not going to happen. They could if they wanted to. Um, but it's just not going to be there. So that that fear of going counter to federal law really is almost less than material. And actually, there was a New Hampshire Supreme Court decision just uh, a couple of weeks ago that indicated that uh, they uh, that reimbursement would be um, OK. Um, and the argument was, well, that will make us counter to federal law. And the Supreme Court decided 
Well, there's nothing in the law that says you can't reimburse for it. So it was an argument that that third party kind of reimbursing for something that somebody else was doing, even if it's illegal at the federal level, that that third party didn't put that third party at risk. So I think it really comes down, if you set aside the concept of, I'm afraid that I'm going to get hauled away in handcuffs, if you kind of put that aside, which most people I think have at this point, it really comes down to your personal bias, either for or against, or in that bell curve, I could go either direction. So then one could argue, and again, not my opinion on this at all, just seeking to understand more information, the education that's put out there. I mean, one could argue that there are not enough educated people who want to render an opinion. We're mainly entering this space with a lot of bias from preconceived notions rather than looking at factual, I don't know, studies or medical studies that have come out or what exactly is really taking place. So I, I would look at this from what, from the information that I'm receiving from you on this, that it is, there's a lack in knowledge and education of concrete objective findings. And we tend to approach this topic more from like a subjective where you stand says a lot about what you see. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think ultimately, I think what's going to propel the work comp industry to, to, uh, forward on this particular subject is to have an open mind. So if you're closed minded and go, it's a devil's lettuce, ain't no way this is ever medicinal. Um, you've already made your choice. It's not going to happen in your organization. It's not going to happen with that particular claim. But I think as the evidence continues to grow, to validate, um, you see publications on JAMA. I mean, the, the PubMed, there's just a lot of stuff that's coming out. Um, how many anecdotal stories does it take to require to, to make it science? You know, is it five anecdotal stories? Is it 5,000 anecdotal stories? Or is it just one that you know somebody who's receiving benefit from it that didn't have it before? It's subjective, right? So I think what we need to do is as an industry, we need to be open-minded and let the science take us where it, where it's going to, treat it just like any other kind of medicine. But again, writing a blank check really is not doing anybody any favors. And so it, that was a good first step. That's in the kiddie pool. If we're going to get into the adult pool in the five foot in, um, we're really going to need to understand what they're getting proactively um, and manage it like medicine, just like any other kind of uh, uh, medicine treatment. I think some of the things you brought up are really good. You know, I attended the, uh, well, I have a number of different times, the National Drug Summit in Atlanta. And one of the topics that, you know, I, I would say I fit in the bell curve. And um, one of the speakers, though, that brought up some really good points, if we think about it, really the legalization of marijuana in Colorado is still really even in its infancy. You know, we're, you know, looking at 2012, 2014, when they started actually having shops open and a lot of data is going to follow and it already is. And I think so. One of the things that our industry can do and probably all of those in the medical industry should do is look at the data and see what it says. And there's going to be more and more of that over the next few years. And so the more that we have, the more information we have, the better decisions I think we'll be able to make. And, and you're right in that we have to come to a way to have some kind of control if this is where we're heading so that we know that we're treating this like medicine instead of if it makes you feel good, then it's okay. And whatever that is, we'll reimburse you. Um, that's a pretty slippery slope for sure. Uh, so really interesting thoughts there on that. And I really like where um, 
where you went with that. Now, when you're thinking, so some states and specifically, I know Tennessee is one that has a drug-free work program where if you register with the state of Tennessee as a drug-free workplace and you go through the necessary requirements and you're in an injury and you test positive for drugs, illegal drugs, which in this case, marijuana, I believe still counts in Tennessee, not positive on that, then you, your claim can be denied. Uh, and so many employers have in, in many states have drug-free free workplaces how do employers navigate this if it comes through the work comp channel after an injury and they're prescribed this? That That's a really tricky question. And, and in my conversations around the country, it really depends on each individual company and their culture. So, for example, um, if you accept federal dollars, as long as marijuana is illegal at the federal level, if you accept federal dollars, um, you have to have a drug-free workplace, a zero-tolerance policy. I don't care you know, if you smoked it two weeks ago, but it's still in your system. That's what makes marijuana interesting is that it stays in your system a lot longer than other drugs. So um, you know, unless you, unless you smoke it as you get ready to go to work that morning, if let's say, for example, and I use this example a lot, Let's say that you're a uh, slip and fall at work on Monday morning at 10 a.m. You do a drug test and you come back positive for marijuana. Well, the last time you smoked marijuana was with your buddies on Saturday night when you went to a concert. So was the slip and fall related to intoxication from, from marijuana? Were you impaired at 10 o'clock in the morning on Monday from what you smoked on Saturday night? Now, are you going to test positive? Yep. So just because you test positive doesn't mean that you're impaired. And that's where the breathalyzer that, you know, there's a couple of corp, uh, 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 companies that have been working on breathalyzers, uh, blood draws um, that tries to get uh, the level. I, I've always opined that when you have like a defrib unit, you know, um, employers have all these different things on the wall in case of medical emergency. We're going to have a diabetic kind of blood draw. That as soon as you slip and fall, we prick your finger, take a blood sample and test it for um, THC level, because at that point in time is what's important as far as, you know, um, you know, your level of impairment. Um, and if you smoked it on Saturday, that has probably nothing to do with your slip and fall on Monday, more than likely. Now, it could be you're just naturally inattentive. Or it could be that there was, um, you know, uh, there was water on the floor and the workplace didn't clean it up properly. I mean, there could be a variety of different things like that. So zero tolerance policy, federal uh, federal dollars. Uh, if you have a, uh, a, a CDL, commercial driver's license, you also so that excludes pilots, that excludes, you know, train drivers, that excludes truck drivers, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if you don't do that. Um, you pretty much can make your own decision. So I, I, interact, I, I met with a guy that uh, runs a winery in Napa, um, and he said he actually had two different uh, policies. For the people that were driving the forklift, he had a zero tolerance policy because he didn't want to mess with the red and white, right? You don't want to be inebriated and puncture the, you know, the, the, the wine that you've been growing and stomping on and fermenting for you know, at least a couple months. So um, depending upon if it's in a box or a bottle, right? So, you know, you don't, you want to have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to the forklift driver, but for customer service, 
He didn't do any drug testing at all. Didn't do pre-employment drug testing. Didn't do post-accident drug testing. Didn't do random drug testing. Why? Because he couldn't find enough clean candidates to fill his customer service suites. So he had to lower the bar. And, you know, a, a mellowed out customer service person really isn't the worst thing in the world, if you think about it. Um, but, you know, he made that decision as a business owner that I'm going to have different. Now, I don't, know what, I don't know what OSHA thinks about that, but there was a safety sensitive job in his mind that required a zero tolerance policy. And there were other jobs that weren't safety sensitive that he didn't do the testing. Um, I spoke to a construction company in Colorado, and this blew my mind. She stopped doing post-accident testing and, and pre-employment testing. It's like, okay, so people that are walking on a six-inch wide beam, 30 or 60 or 90 feet up in the air, um, you're not going to know whether they're impaired or not. And she goes, it's Colorado. I got to have people that we are, are going to show up and are going to build houses, are going to build sheds, are going to build high rises. And I can't, I can't not be in business by having a zero tolerance policy that makes me feel good because all of my, none of my people are, are impaired, but I don't have anybody to actually do the work. And oh, by the way, impairment isn't just from cannabis, right? You're impaired from Xanax. You're impaired from Percocet. You're impaired from alcohol. You're impaired from sleep deprivation. You're impaired from relational and financial issues at home. You know, there's a variety of things that create an absenteeism and a presenteeism that means that you're not at your level best. You're not at 100% for your job. So let's not throw cannabis and go, that's the only impairing agent. We got a bunch of people that are taking massively, uh, massive high amounts dosage of impairing prescription drugs that the FDA approved that we're completely cool with. But they're impaired when they get to work because they're depression, because they're anxiety, because they're pain, whatever. So it, it, you got to take it into account. We've treated marijuana and, and I don't know if you know this or not, but prior to 1937, marijuana was completely legal and the, and there was no stigma at all from a cultural standpoint. It was completely legal before that. But Harry Ainslinger, who was the first Federal Bureau of Narcotics uh, uh, leader, uh, used um, uh, a variety of different methods to sway the public's opinion. Uh, and reefer madness, you probably probably heard of that. It, it's uh, a wholly racist. <laughs> I mean, it's a really bad movie. I don't think it could be made today. But it was made back in the in the 1930s, and the whole argument was. And again, I'm stating what I'm I'm stating what it said. I'm not stating my opinion. But it said the Mexicans are coming across the border and bringing their loco weed with them and causing our kids to commit crimes. And he used that that pr propaganda. To, sweat, to change the public opinion. And then President Nixon in 1969, when he created the Controlled Substances Act, he said, I'll show those Berkeley kids that, are, that, that I don't like very much. I'll show them. I'm going to put marijuana in Schedule 1 just with heroin, with peyote, with meth, with all that kind of stuff. There wasn't a clinical justification. There wasn't a scientific justification to be Schedule 1 versus Schedule 2 versus Schedule 3. It was a political decision. So everything in regards to marijuana is political. So the longer, the old, so the older, the older you are, the more you realize that this is a relatively recent coming out of the marijuana is the devil's lettuce. You know, if, if you were born in 1922, it was just a function of nature. If you were born in 1876, it was just a function of nature. 
So there's been a variety of things that uh, has happened uh, that has made it legal. So the whole thing about turning it around and making and removing the stigma is a political thing as well. It's not being made legal by states based on science necessarily. It's ballot initiatives. It's people's voting with their hearts. One of my favorite phrases is facts don't care about your feelings, right? So it's important to understand, Greg, to your point, it's open. It, it's important to understand the data. It's important to let the data guide us. But that's not what's guiding us towards legalization. It's normal, right? It's the decriminalization. It's the it, it has become it has taken on racial overtones over the past two or three years that people of color have been discriminated against disproportionately uh, by being imprisoned for uh, possession of marijuana. There's all sorts of conversations. And then you had Charlotte Fiji, the little girl in uh, Colorado that had Dravet syndrome. And she got Charlotte's Web, a common a low THC CBD product that helped her uh, reduce her seizures from 350 per week to one per week. Now she has since passed away and her seizures got worse over time. So it wasn't a long-term lifetime, uh, but, but she became the, the poster child for CBD is going to help my kid. And if you don't think any, if, if you think that something is going to pull on the heart string, heartstrings of people and elicit motions, having a five-year-old kid that has 350 seizures per, per week from an epileptic seizure, and you say that all the FDA approved drugs don't work, but yet the CBD that you can't get high from does, that pulled at the heartstrings. That drove a lot of legalization from a medical cannabis program in a variety of states, like in my home state of Georgia, we had our own little Charlotte Fiji who happened to be a little boy. And the argument was, do you really want to make his parents become felons by going to Colorado, getting a low THC CBD product that will help him reduce his seizures and cross state boundaries in order to bring it back? Or do you want them to be expats? Do you want them to be medical expats and they have to leave Georgia and move to Colorado, which happened a lot after Charlotte Fiji's story on the CNN weed series back in 2014. Um, and, uh, you know, making them go there. So there's a variety of different, I'm not, I don't even know what the original question was at this point. I just, I just went off, but I think I answered maybe a question in there somewhere, but that that's kind of where we're at right now. All right. So then what happens from an adjusting standpoint, if they get, how do they, how do they effectively navigate medical marijuana, the cannabis when it is prescribed or it's been recommended? Where do they even begin? Well, I think the first step is, and I've been arguing this since 2014, each individual organization needs to figure out what their policy is going to be about this. You do not want this to be a case-by-case decision based uh, done by a claims adjuster, right? Because a 55-year-old claims adjuster who thinks that marijuana is the devil's lettuce will never, ever look at it because that preconceived bias will never, ever look at it as a potential option. The 23-year-old stoner We'll say, give it to them every time. So the organization has to have a policy. Um, you have to, if you have a medical director, that medical director needs to look at the evidence, needs to be open-minded about where it's at and make a decision. This is when we get a request, this is what we're going to do. Are we going to automatically say no? Are we going to say, give us the, give us the evidence that you have that it's working for you? Give us the dosage, give, give us how you're using, what you're using, the product, et cetera. Give us all that and we'll take a look at it. So you need to understand from an organizational standpoint, you need to have policies. Um, uh, and they may be written on Wikipedia uh, because, you know, um, statutes change and, and, you know, all that stuff changes. But 
you need to have an organizational policy. You cannot leave this in the hands of a claims adjuster. And we've already put claims adjusters at risk by asking them to make decisions on whether Oxycontin is appropriate or not, right? We've asked them, we've asked them for 20 years to opine on medical conditions and medical treatments that they do not have training for. And we've asked them to make a yes or no decision. Now, granted, sometimes that goes to a nurse case manager. Sometimes that goes to utilization review. Sometimes that goes to peer review. But we've put a claims adjuster oftentimes in a difficult situation of trying to make a, 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 a decision on a very complex circumstance that they don't have any understanding of. We don't want to compound that by asking them to figure out whether weed's the appropriate solution for this particular person. So I think every organization needs to look inward. They need to spend some conscious, strategic time to, to take some time to look at the evidence, to look at what their cultural uh, uh, importance is, what's important to them, and they need to figure that out. Same question, you know, same answer, Greg, in, in far, as far as the drug testing. Each individual organization needs to figure out what's important to them. Is It, it could be uh, the difference between butts and seats and no butts and seats. So it's a pragmatic business decision. Or it could be that the organization goes, we can't, uh, we can't afford to have anybody impaired. And let's not just focus on cannabis. Let's just make sure they're not impaired from anything. So make sure they're not taking Xanax and not getting but four hours of sleep and driving into work, um, you know, winding along the interstate and they show up for work and they're nodding off about 10. That's not work. That's not productive. That's impairment. However, however you define it. So I think really, ultimately, it comes down to an organization creating a policy that they feel comfortable with and then fully educating everybody in that organization what that policy is. So you're singing out of the same hymnal. I think that's a really good point is we need to be prepared uh, because those requests are going to continue. And I know in my career, we've only seen a couple, but mostly that has to do with the states that we write business in. And I expect as this continues, as the political atmosphere continues to shift, we're going to see more of that uh, in the future. So having having a policy internally of how that should be handled makes a lot of sense. Um, Mark, we really appreciate having you with us today. I think we tackled some tough topics today, um, and they're ones that um, are at the forefront. They're things that we're going to be seeing more and more, I think, uh, in our own company's future and uh, in the industry in general uh, as uh, the shift away from opioids continues. And the question is, how, what do we fill that with? And how do we help people deal with the challenges that they're facing? One final question that we wanted to check in with you on was, what excites you about the future of workers' compensation, Mark? I hope that we're still going to be around for another 100 years. <laughs> so I'd be excited if, uh, you know, if we effectively handle the talent gap, uh, something that Claire and I are working on very closely on the transitions uh, and the specific you know, focus on this generational shift and mentorship. And, you know, if you're not familiar with the transitions, please follow us on LinkedIn, join our mentoring program. I think that's really important. I think what, what's exciting to me about WorkComp is the evolution, because I, I've seen a lot of people that have been addicted to the status quo and were nearly, really not open to new things. But as those people exit the industry, and new people enter the industry that have more of an open mind and have kind of that, that picture of that holistic view. I think it's going to be more and more available for biopsychosocial, psychotherapy, nutritionists, 
yoga, cannabis, virtual reality therapy, whatever the different options are, I think they're going to be much more open to it. Technology continues to increase. Uh, you know, there's just so many things to, to, to take, take, take effect on. But I think what's important, what's exciting to me about WorkComp is that we're going to see the churn of the people that have always been doing it the same way for the past 110 years are going to exit the system. And with that is going to exit that status quo. And so what I'm excited about is the next generation, um, the, 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 another, the, the people that are at the second level that are going to go to the third level, the people, the third level, the first level, the people that are in college that are going to come into the industry and they're going to come in with a much more open mind, a much more holistic approach. And I think ultimately what that means is injured workers are going to be more satisfied with the work comp system. There's going to be less antagonism in the work comp system. Um, and I think there's going to be clinic, better clinical and financial outcomes uh, than trying to always do it the same way. So what's your, I got I got one more follow-up question because I can. <laughs> it's the fun part about being one of these co-hosts. All right. What's your advice to adjusters who want to be agitators for the good? Because that's one of the things that I think that I get asked quite a bit. And they're like, well, I'm just an adjuster. You hold so much power in that adjusting seat. So how do you feel, like, what would your advice be to a, a young adjuster that really wants to think outside the box and challenge that status quo? How can they effectively agitate from their seat? Because I think that, you know, we think of agitation as normally like a bad thing when really it's how people get things done by being effective in what they're doing. So any final thoughts for people listening? Yeah, well, the agitator for me is hopefully that positive aspect is basically just trying to get people think differently um, and to understand the biases and the prejudices towards the status quo of always having done it the same way and make them second, make them second guess themselves and go, hey, wait a minute, everything that I've always done, maybe that's not the right way and maybe I should be open to that. So I think the first thing a claims adjuster should do is to establish a really good relationship with their leadership. Um, they need to understand what their leadership expects of them. They need to have an honest and transparent relationship with that leadership, because the last thing you want to do is agitate and come with the pitchforks and the, and the lighted torches and your leadership, um, you know, uh, has their has their fire hose ready to, 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 to douse it. Right. So I think you first need to establish a relationship with your peers and with your leadership to understand what's important to them. Um, and then uh, to establish a good, transparent, honest relationship with them where it's a bi-directional sharing of information. And if you've got that fertile ground where you can share your mind um, and not necessarily be concerned about being, uh, you know, uh, losing your job or, you know, um, being second guessed or being demoted or whatever. But you can go, hey, wait a minute. I saw this and this doesn't make sense. And I've come up with this other thing. I've done some research on my own. Um, you know, what I, I think this might be an option. Can we talk about that? Um, I think that would be a great thing. The other thing that really is one of my pet peeves, and I hope claims adjusters won't fall into this, and I know it's mostly salespeople, but one of my pet peeves is to go to a conference and there's great educational content and all of the vendor providers are in the exhibit hall chatting amongst themselves, as opposed to being in the conference hall, listening to thought leaders explain what's happening and what's coming. Those people that are not, that are not paying attention, not doing their homework, not spending time after hours reading, not engaging from a mentor mentee standpoint with people who've been there, done that, not growing themselves 
are going to be really in a position of making bad decisions. They're going to be left behind. And I think is that exciting thing when you get the new generation coming on here, the ones that are going to be like the two of you guys are, which are pushing the envelope and trying to get people to think things different. Y'all are going to be the leaders. And if other people, your peers aren't at that same level of passion, that same level of interest, the, the same level of doing their own homework, working is hard. There's a reason why we call it work is not play, right? Work is hard. Being prepared, being a professional being really good at what you do takes work. And so um, that would be my, my, my final salutation, I guess, to a claim suggester is put in the work. Don't be a passive sponge that's waiting for people to pour into you. Be an aggressive, agitating, edu self-educating, self-empowering person. If you don't know the answer, find it. If you can't find it, find somebody who does. Do your homework, get prepared. And if you do that and you're open to different ideas and you have a good, honest, transparent relationship with your peers and your and your leadership, agitating is just going to be kind of a natural outgrowth of that. Right. Because you're so well read. You're so understanding of trends. You're so understanding of what's going on that when you see this, you go, well, what about this, this or this? And if you can come up with this, this or this, and then you have the discussion with your leadership and go, what if we did this, this or this? They go that. Either one or two things, right? You're stupid. Go sit back down. Or two, that's a really great idea. I hadn't thought about it that way. Let's talk about it further. The second option is what you want. I love it. Ah, so many good things. All right. We're going to wrap this up, Mark. So how can people get a hold of you? Where should people go to check things out? We can put a ton of information in the show notes, but is there anything that you want to specifically mention? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. That's my primary platform, Mark. Uh, M-A-R-K-P-E-W. I've got a YouTube channel, um, uh, the arts, uh, the arts profession. I got a variety of short and long-term, uh, phones. Um, you can email me at mark.pew at thepreferredmedical.com or markpew at yahoo.com. I've got a Twitter account that I'm, I'm not using much right now. Um, and, uh, I got my cell phone number. I'm afraid to give that, up. <laughs> you know, there's, that's okay. We actually also would love your mother's maiden name and your ATM pin. <laughs> the yeah. Last four, the last four digits <laughs> of my social security number are five, 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 five. <laughs> well, awesome. You shared so many good things with us today. That was fascinating. I appreciate the candid dialogue on something that I really think is like a sensitive topic. I think with a lot of, a lot of insurance companies, and I think we just kind of are in that. I think we just need to be educating. We got to educate, 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 pay attention to the science, figure out where we're going to go and really pay attention to the facts. And I love when you said facts or facts don't care about your feelings or feelings don't care about your facts. Facts don't care about your feelings. No. Yep. Love it. Love it. Well, that's it for today, guys. And thanks, everybody. We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast. We want to thank Cameron Runyon for his excellent intro music. If you are interested in adding some music to your life, please feel free to contact him. We will provide his information in our show notes. Thank you for listening. And we hope you join us for future episodes releasing every two weeks on Monday. Thanks again and happy listening.